I'm desperate to get myself people that are smarter than me. I'm desperately trying to get people with energy. I call it the four E's. Energy, ability to energize people, uh, to execute, get it done, and have edge. And I uh, want passion. I want them to care more. Wait a second. Who said that? Remember General Electric, that massive corporation that was once bigger than economies of entire nations, spanning continents and altering the landscape of entire industries. In that sage-like voice you just heard, that was Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric. In the 70s and 80s, GE was the training grounds for overachievers who would go on to head other companies and challenge the status quo. The credit, to a very large extent, goes to Jack Welch, who had the uncanny ability to identify high performers and groom and cultivate them into future leaders. One of them was Michael Dinkins, who today is one of the most visible faces in the community of global finance. I'm your host, Danny Howe, and this is episode two of Spend Culture, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the stories of bold leaders who are redefining corporate America from the front lines of business. It's 1976, and Michael Dinkins, a finance major from Michigan State University, finds himself at GE Capital, one of the company's largest divisions and the engine of its growth. When I graduated from Michigan State University, uh, one of the things I was thinking was a uh, company that had a training program so I could look at a variety of different areas of finance and try to understand maybe what would be the best fit for me. So I joined General Electric on the financial management training program which was a two-year training program consisting of courses and approximately every six months rotating into different jobs. They gave me an opportunity to see a variety of different activities from uh, accounting uh, work uh, to also business support and um, kind of gave me a little bit of direction on my career. I did consider going back to uh, school and getting my master's degree, but I was having very good success getting promoted into different roles at General Electric. And at GE, there were a lot of senior level uh, managers who did not have master's degrees, so it really was not required to get ahead. In the 70s and 80s, GE was emerging as a major powerhouse. Even as the world economy was cratering with a recession in much of the developed world, General Electric was on track to acquire 600 new companies and take his market cap from $12 billion to hundreds of billions of dollars. So what distinguished GE from other companies? Was it the people or was there something inherently unique about GE's culture? It does not matter that much what company you work for. It matters what person you work for. Uh, there's, there's two things. Companies do have cultures. So some companies have a culture that everyone's gonna work six days a week um, 16 hours a day. So if that doesn't fit with your, with you personally, you know you're not going to excel in that uh, type of culture, then you should not join. Um, so you do look for cultures. But once you get beyond the culture side, it really gets down to the individual. You can have two companies side by side, culturally they fit. I'm going to pick the company where I'm most impressed with the manager that uh, I'm going to be working for and I really think I'm going to learn a lot from them. That would be the deciding factor. And so at GE, Michael had the rare opportunity to learn from the best. It was Jack Welch himself, who set an example from the rest of the company. 
me and um, some other black managers at GE uh, decided that we would approach Jack Welch uh, and discuss uh, General Electric's, um, you know, I won't, I guess, for lack of a better word, affirmative action, and just the fact that we didn't think there was enough black representation at General Electric and what we could do about it. Uh, and that if from the tone at the top, if he set the tone, you know, things would get better, blah, blah, blah. It was kind of interesting because he stopped us at the beginning of the meeting. And he went around and he asked us, each person that was there, uh, and there was about six or seven of us there, maybe eight, I don't forget the exact number, um, representing most of the senior level finance, uh, senior level black people throughout the entire company. And uh, he asked us how many people work for us. And when you aggregated uh, all of the people there, and I was probably the one that had the least number of people, but we had a couple of senior level people that had 10, 15,000 people work for us. Um, and we added up to all the numbers, we came to a fairly high number, let's say 20, 25,000 people. Did we ask how many blacks were for us? We didn't know the answer. And he basically pushed back at us and he says, if you're the black, the top black leaders in this company and you don't know the answer for your own numbers and your numbers are not um, markedly exceeding the rest of the company. In other words, if you could come in here and say you're at two, three X the rest of the company in terms of representation, that would make a big impact because, you know, for the various reasons. And basically said to tell you, you guys do that, why are you asking me to, you know, uh, fix this problem when the leadership needs to come from you? And we all left with our tail between our legs and, and recognized, and, and it taught me a lesson. It, you know, fix the problem yourself. Take ownership. You know, make sure you're contributing um, to fixing the problem, and then rally people around you to help get momentum behind what you're doing, but don't go to someone with a problem uh, until you get in there and get it headed in the right direction and then ask for support to take it to the next level. And we went back and we started um, the African American, um, um, I forget the exact name that we gave for it was kind of like a, 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 a support group, started watching our own numbers, started mentoring the people ourselves. And then once that um, got root and took place over a couple of year time frame, then we went back to, uh, I actually wasn't me at that particular time, but then some of the leadership people went back to Jack and said, would you speak at our next conference? And he welcomed me did. Um, but that was one learning thing that a personal interaction with Jack Welch where um, he taught us, hey, we have to be leaders, not complainers. Um, and then once you're meeting the group, then ask for the support that you need to take it to the next level. So that, that would be one um, memorable meeting that I had with Jack. Um, that um, then there's a couple others I could share, but and, and if you want to hear them, but that's the one that would probably be most impactful, where he just challenged us to be leaders. Michael worked at GE for close to two decades, and by the time he decided to branch out on his own, he has already acquired the skills, the operational expertise, and the mindset that was necessary to becoming a leader not just in the realm of finance, but beyond. 
After GE, Michael worked as VP of Finance, CFO, Executive Vice President, and Chairman at a string of companies. But what distinguished Michael was that he wasn't content with making analysis or reporting on numbers. It was perhaps some a combination of his egregious personality and a belief that he could engage with employees across departments to come up with actionable solutions that actually solved problems. It also helped that he was trained by the best. Early on in my career, just because of, I, I guess my personality, I, I sat there. My very first job was, you know, an accounts receivable, and you know, I did that for six months. I'm like, oh, I sure don't want to do this. So when I got off the um, training program, the very first job I took was a project training program, uh, consolidating uh, payroll from fifty uh, different plant locations into one central location. Back in the days when computers were just being introduced and networks were, you know, very slow and so forth, not not, you know, this was thirty, forty years ago. Um, so throughout my career, yes. There's times I walked in, and then I've worked for small businesses. I've walked in, worked for small businesses, you know, startup where we um, went out and bought five different companies, uh, took them public, and you know, we ran into problems. And, you know, I walked into work, you know, trying to figure out how we're going to make payroll, um, and you know, how we're going to move funds around in order to um, have enough funds to make uh, payroll. You walk into deals where you're trying to refinance, and if you don't refinance, you could literally potentially go bankrupt. Uh-oh. So, because I've worked on project works a lot, uh, I would say there's numerous opportunities where you first get the first set of news, uh, and X Y Z has happened, and um, you know, if you just accept it and go forward, it, it would be a disaster. But you start brainstorming what you can do. And I always tell people what we can do within the law, what's legal and ethical, what you know the, the behavior that we we want to have. So you know you got you got to set that um, expectation or, or limitation so that people understand that look, we're going to try uh, very very hard to always um, fix the problem, but we're always going to do it within the parameters of doing what's right not cheating and not, not, nothing that's illegal. But when you do project work, it happens many, many times. And then what happens is that that builds the confidence. And you don't, you're not, you don't succeed 100% of the time. So you also learn to you know, deal with your setbacks. Uh, and I think that makes one a more well-rounded person that can um, become a better leader. Of course, that's easier said than done. Besides, things always seem rosier in retrospect. Michael's advice makes sense, but can it actually help younger up-and-coming accountants, analysts, or bankers make a tangible impact on their career? Indeed, to what extent can a young professional follow Michael's playbook, especially at a time when there is an abundance of career hacks, management literature, and self-help books competing for attention? To a young accountant trying to advance her career, aren't there far too many variables, doubts, and uncertainties that need to be accounted for? No pun intended. So we did the best thing we can. We just asked Michael what kind of person he himself would hire. When you stop and think about it, when you actually figure something out or are able to do a calculation, etc., uh, it's only in your head. So the key thing next is your ability to go communicate that to somebody else, whether in written form or orally, uh, talking to them, whatever the case may be. 
So what I'm looking for is someone that, um, again, has that bias for action where they can interact with people, uh, and they're a good communicator, and they know how to, if they're talking to uh, investment bankers, they will present it in one way, but if they're talking to the plant manager that uh, comes up with a manufacturing engineering background, they learn to adapt their communication and, and communicate it differently to that audience. And that they're comfortable talking to someone who, you know, came up through uh, the manufacturing ranks or the HR ranks or whatever legal, whatever the case may be, and they can talk to a variety of uh, different kinds of people. So that's what I'm looking for. They really need to know what they're supposed to know, and then that ability to have that communication skills. And I believe that you develop that when you first get out of school and, 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 and work through. That's why I keep going back to projects and, and other types of special things because, to your point, dealing with the unknown, dealing with things not going as expected, you leave um, one evening and you think everything is all laid out and you, when you're working on a project, you find that something, a test failed or something happened or whatever the case may be, and now you gotta redo your plan. And when you're working for people that are highly successful, you'll see how they deal with those uncertainties and you'll learn from that. You'll deal with that, you know, a lot of people think it's cliche, but um, often used to say, never waste a good crisis. Uh, because out of an issue or a crisis, opportunity and therefore so when something really fails or does something you know really wrong the person with the right attitude is saying hey this is this is a wonderful opportunity to show my leadership capabilities my skills my knowledge uh, and when you work underneath someone that brings that type of perspective to the table you, you obviously learn from that when you work for people that um, don't bring that perspective and they're more like just monthly put out activity A and activity B, and when something happens, they say, well, we're going to be two days late. Um, and that's the, you know, the point of view that you get. Well, then that doesn't bode well for you moving forward in your career. As opposed to work for someone, something happens, hey, we're going to be two days late. Let's figure out how we can um, not make that happen and get it back on schedule. So it, it really goes down to uh, who you're working for. So the skill set that I'm looking for and the person is, hey, if they don't know it, then I can't work with them. And if they can't communicate, don't want to communicate, and don't want to interact with people, um, then it's hard to work with them. You give me those two things, then you can work with them, train them, and develop them, and move them forward. But if they, they really don't know what they're supposed to know, and in or, they don't want to interact with people, it's kind of hard to, to really take that person and, you know, really get things done with them. Now, if there's one thing that's truly remarkable about Michael's career, it's a seamless transition from a finance person into a variety of roles. This is a unique trait that he shares with at least one quarter of the CEOs in North America. According to Quartz Media, up to one-fourth of CEOs in North America were at one point, CFOs. In fact, a CFO's power of adaptation are so strong that oftentimes they are hired as a CEO in a company or an industry in which they have no prior experience. But I will say this, and I think of one of the reasons why a lot of CFOs are, are being elevated into the CEO role 
and not just because they happen to be at the point where cutting costs is uh, necessary for business, is because the CFO is one of the uh, few positions that sees the total company. Everything that's going on within the company, uh, the CFO has insight into that. And they have insight into that from a perspective of understanding the processes that are being done in those functions in a um, um, insight to the time frame of how long it takes for those processes to happen. So they see how HR is recruiting and how long it takes for HR to actually bring someone on board. They see um, how a manufacturing plant is going to uh, introduce new equipment and what's the startup time for that equipment and, and, and so forth. Uh, they understand the quality control systems that are over the business and what's going to cause a product to be uh, uh, rejected. And then what it's going to take to potentially mitigate that product being rejected and so forth. They see the whole company. And there's an advantage to that. And when you have a CFO that sees the whole company and they are uh, outgoing enough that they build relationships with the various people and they have the respect of those people, uh, and those people know that that CFO understands their the processes and so forth, they win the respect of those individuals so that um, um, oftentimes they're comfortable elevating them into the CEO role because of all the things that I just said. If that CFO is smart, they will um, surround themselves with people that can that can generate revenue. Ultimately, the purpose of the business is to go get customers and to get revenue. Michael began in 1976. It's now 2017, and even though he has retired from holding some of the coveted positions he once held, he is now focused on using his experience to change the fates of struggling businesses. I have um, this month started my own business. I named it Dinkins LLC. The purpose of that business is to do something I've been kind of doing on the side, you know, even since I retired, which is working with entrepreneurs that um, are seeking access to capital. Uh, I saw a statistic not too long ago that 70% of the time when small businesses go and uh, try to raise capital with their bank, they're turned down. And you, most of them come at this, they have less than perfect um, credit because they're, they're regular business, it's, it's not perfect. And they just don't know how to go get that capital. Uh, I have worked with some friends of mine that know a number of investors, you know, community banks, banks that um, can do SBA loans, um, the smaller venture capital firms, not the ones that's doing the multi-billion dollar investors, the ones that would look for uh, opportunities of five, ten, fifteen million dollar investments, you know, smaller stuff. Uh, this middle market, uh, and there's a need for that. So I'm going to be um, speaking at conferences, speaking, doing some lunch and learns, and networking with uh, companies that need help. And uh, if I can mash them up with a lender and uh, show them how to, you know, uh, put the material in front of that lender where there's a much higher probability of them uh, being approved. Part of it is just matching them up with the right lender. Um, I use the analogy of, you know, shopping. If you um, need a sports outfit to work out and you go to Brooks Brothers, 
well, then the chances that you're going to find what you're looking for does not make sense. So if you're a construction company and you go to a lender that doesn't do construction lending, um, you're probably not going to be successful. Um, so part of it is just making sure if you're a startup or if you um, are going to have to get a loan that's going to be based on cash flows, um, if you need a loan that's going to be uh, more asset-based lending, uh, then go to a lender that, that does asset-based lending and, and they understand it. Uh, but they may not do it for construction companies. They may not do it for this type. So part of it is knowing the lending side and maxing them up and then making sure that you work with the other side. I spend a good, good portion of my time supporting my church. I've become a deacon of the church and I also teach uh, Sunday school. So uh, a good portion of my time is, is spent on that and that's where I'm kind of at in my life where um, you know I wanted to have more time to be able to uh, study God's Word, share God's Word with other people and, and do those type of things. I have um, this month started my own business. Thanks for tuning in on the second episode of Spend Culture. Do you have an interesting story to share? Please write to me then at dannyhowe at procurify.com. That's D-A-N-I dot H-A-O at procurify.com. And we can host you on the next episode of the Spend Culture Podcast. This podcast was sponsored by Procurify, purchase automation software that is reinventing the way companies spend. Please visit our website at www.procurify.com to learn more and mention this podcast to get a complimentary demo.